0: Thank you for joining us for the study of God's Word today. Grab a Bible and listen carefully as God will be speaking to us through His Word today. And may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our Rock and our Redeemer. The Apostle Paul knew what it was to be frustrated in his search contentment even as a believer in Christ he says in the fourth chapter of the book of Philippians I have learned the secret of being content in each and every situation his progenitor David the great king the warrior poet he knew the elusiveness of contentment as well And in the first psalm, in the Psalter, if you'll turn to Psalm 1, we see how we can know contentment. It's there for the taking on our part. We simply have to be introduced to why we don't have contentment in order that we can divest ourselves of those things which rob us of contentment And embrace the truth that God gives us about how we can indeed live a life of contentment. Let's read Psalm 1. You follow along as I read it silently. I'm reading today, read it aloud rather. I'm not going to read it silently. (laughs) (laughs) I probably could, though. the wicked are not so, but they are like chaff which the wind drives away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish." This psalm is introduced by the two words how blessed, speaking of the person who does not do certain things. How blessed. This is the word which speaks in the Old Testament language of true satisfaction, true contentment. It's translated in some of the translations of the Old Testament by the word happiness. We who are steeped in the New Testament, and it's good to be steeped in the New Testament, I might add, we are quick to make a distinction between happiness and joy, aren't we? We say happiness is based upon circumstances. Joy is independent of circumstances. But when we look at this passage of Scripture, to be quite honest with the text, which is God's Word, we have to say God has a plan for our happiness. Now do what you want to with the concept of joy. But happiness, that's the idea that is conveyed by the psalmist here under inspiration of the Spirit. How blessed is the man. And when the word man is used here, it's used to describe mankind as opposed to just people who are male. And here what we see is that, first of all, in order to have this kind of satisfaction, this kind of contentment, we must be separated from the world. John writes about the aspects of the world. He neatly divides it into three categories for us. And quite honestly, when I look at that, it really encompasses all the categories of sin. The lust of the eyes, which has to do with my wanting something or someone that does not belong to me, or who does not belong to me. Also, he talks about the lust of the flesh, which is that which is a God-given drive that is exhibited and exercised outside the confines or the boundaries which God has established for us when it comes to being followers of Him. Remember when Jesus was tempted in the wilderness? He was tempted in both of these areas, actually. He was tempted in the area of the lust of the eyes when the devil took him to a place where he could see all the kingdoms of the world. Some people say maybe he just flashed it through the mind of Christ or he actually took him to a high mountain to give him a representative view of what that looks like. But that's beside the point. Jesus was tempted to want the things of the world. The devil knows how to get to us, doesn't he? It didn't work with Jesus and it need not work for us and hence this passage of Scripture which advises us not to be people who want to be like worldlings. The third category of worldliness is the boastful pride of life. It's wanting to be somebody, be admired by other people, to boast in our might, to boast in our intelligence or wisdom, to boast in things which only God should have people boast about because he is who he is. It's really trying to take the place of God, the boastful pride of life. It's what got the devil kicked out of heaven. And the first temptation according to Matthew that Jesus was subjected to was that he turned stones into bread. Now think just a moment What had Jesus just finished when he was tempted to turn stones into bread? Forty days of no eating, fasting. And Jesus would have been incredibly hungry. I haven't even fasted more than a couple, three days, and I'm hungry after the first hour and a half usually. (laughs) But Jesus had that to deal with when it comes to the lust of the flesh. Something that's a natural God-given bent that's exercised outside the context of the will of God. Let's look at what the psalmist says here. How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked. Pay attention to a downgrade in the life of the person in question. The person begins walking... Living, is the metaphor here, living in the counsel of the wicked. The word which is translated wicked in the Hebrew language is a word which has to do with being morally wrong. This is an immoral person. And we are subjected as we walk through this world with things that are immoral and there are purveyors of this immorality. They communicate it to us in the way they think the way they act all sorts of things and we are incredibly unwise and we are working against what God wants for us and we're sabotaging ourselves if we walk in the counsel of the wicked do you ever hear any counsel from the wicked well if you listen to radio or you listen to TV you're going to get plenty of it aren't you We have it bombarding us all the time, the counsel of the wicked. Nor stand in the path of sinners. And the word translated sinner here is a word which has to do with habitual sinning. It's a picture of the person who is not occasionally sinning, but lives a lifestyle that is unbroken when it comes to participating in sin. So the person in question here, Is walking in the counsel of the wicked, the morally wrong, and before long, what does that person find herself doing? This person is standing in the path of the habitual sinner. And lastly, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. This word scoffer means to mock. We sang earlier about how Jesus was mocked, scoffed at when He was on the cross. That's the idea. One of the things my mother taught me, I remember her saying this to me many times, don't mock, Mike. She didn't mean Mike, don't mock Mike. She meant don't mock someone else. Don't make fun of is what she was really saying. And the word scoffing, means to have a derisive attitude toward people, putting people down. And this is especially true of those of us who want to be somebody. We want to be recognized in the world. And we work our way to the top by putting people down, being sarcastic about people to their face and to other people. Such a person, who walks in the counsel of the wicked, stands in the path of sinners, and finally finds himself sitting in the seat of scoffers. Such a person is not a satisfied person, not a contented person. There's no hope for contentment in such a person's life. This person is described by what he avoids, this blessed person. He avoids these things, she avoids these things. So let's talk about how can we avoid the counsel of the wicked? How can we avoid standing in the way of sinners? How can we avoid the matter of finally settling down in the seat of the scoffers? Well let me give you some ideas, they're not my ideas, none of this is my idea, really it's from the Bible. And that's the only place we can go for guidance in life that matters. And first of all, I would refer to one thing that the Apostle Paul wrote in the book of 1 Corinthians. He said, flee sexual immorality. That was written to a group of people who lived in perhaps the most sensual, sensuous part of the Greco-Roman world in Corinth. It was, The word to Corinthianize was synonymous with debauchery, with sexual misconduct from God's point of view. He says, flee sexual immorality. So when I find myself in a situation when I'm being tempted to exercise sexual immorality, what am I to do? I'm to turn tail and run. That's what I'm to do. I'm to get out of there. When you or I are looking, men, at our phones and all of a sudden something shows up, it's amazing. I'll go looking for John MacArthur sometimes or Chuck Swindoll sometimes, and it amazes me how right below that place I punch, there's some invitation to sexual immorality. And I'm not going to ask for a show of hands here this morning. Many of you know what I mean when you see that. It's just, there it is. So what are we to do? We're to get out of there. We're to flee. John the Apostle says, flee idolatry. And we know an idol is a substitute God that we find thinking that substitute God will satisfy us. Does it ever satisfy? Let me ask you. Let's be honest. Does A substitute God ever satisfy you or give you contentment? Absolutely not. It's that which is designed to rob you of the possibility of being in a relationship with the one true God in whose presence there is fullness of joy and in whose right hand there are pleasures forevermore. So, When we think of this, we think of two things we're to flee. What are we to flee? We know there are more. I'm going to mention one more which encompasses probably the other two. We flee sexual immorality, and we also flee idolatry. In writing to Timothy, the last letter perhaps that the Apostle Paul wrote that we have recorded in Scripture he makes this statement in 2 Timothy 2, 22. He says, flee youthful passions. And that's, he doesn't stop there. This is what I love about the Word of God. God doesn't just say, don't do that. He says, don't do that, but do this. He doesn't leave us to our own devices to figure out what we are to do. We are men and women whom God has designed to do His will. And when we do His will, we find great relief and great joy as we flee idolatry, immorality, and youthful passions, but pursue righteousness. That sounds like a stodgy old word, doesn't it? Righteousness. We get all kinds of visions when we think about a person who's righteous. But remember, our God is ultimately righteous. And He is no way to be considered. In no way to be stodgy. He's the God who created all this world and the beauty of it. And He wants us to enjoy it. We can't enjoy it if we insist upon going our own way and keeping the wrong kind of company. We're to pursue righteousness, faith. Without faith it's impossible to please God. We know that Faith is the key which unlocks the door to our relationship to God. Then he goes on to say, and peace that's akin to this concept of contentment, peace, and also he wants us to have love. Certainly. And he says, let me go from the first of Second Timothy two twenty two, says flee youthful passion and pursue righteousness, and re- pursue faith, and peace, and love, along with those who are pursuing God in the sense of wanting to be pure in heart. Pursuing God. We need each other in this matter. There's no one who is designed to do it alone. The quicker, quickest way, rather, to be a person who does not find contentment is to live an isolated life. And we can live around a lot of people and interact with a lot of people and remain isolated, but we need to be in sync with others who are pursuing God from a pure heart. The Bible says in 1 Corinthians 15:33 right in the middle of the great teaching on the resurrection of Christ and its importance to the Christian faith, Paul makes this statement. He actually quotes one of the philosophers slash poets of his day. Bad company corrupts good morals. That's true, isn't it? You can remember that. Let's say it together. Bad company corrupts good morals. If I hang out with those who counsel me to be a person of wickedness, if I stand in the path of sinners, am I in good company? Absolutely not. I need to be in the company of people who are not perfect, but people who know Christ and are moving in the direction of deeper devotion and holiness in relationship to God. The Bible says in 2 Corinthians 6, verse 14, that we're not to be unequally yoked. Now, most of us here today who are adults probably are married. There might be some candidates for marriage. There are some older people who are widowed and would like to have a mate. They miss their mate. This would be a hard day for someone to come as a male follower of Christ and think about the things related to the loss of a wife. But the good news is the Lord is working, isn't he? He is working. And what he says is, don't be unequally yoked. Wait on the Lord if you're... I had a conversation not too long ago with a man, not in our church, but a dear Christian brother. And he's still grieving. He's lost his wife over a year ago. He's still in great pain in that situation. He's hoping for a wife. And he's in his 80s. That's pretty encouraging, isn't it? For those of us who are in our 70s to think about that, unbelievable. But the point is, if you are single, whether you've never been married, or you're single, having been married, and you're hoping God will give you somebody, don't give up. But find your contentment in doing what God says. Flee sexual immorality. Flee idolatry. Pursue righteousness and faith. peace and love with those who are pure in heart. Mark Twain is a name that we're all familiar with, probably. Twain was considered by people in the U.S. as well as Europe as being the greatest up until his lifetime. Many thought he was the greatest literary person in the history of the United States of America. Well, he was a man who was full of sarcasm, He was a man who was full of mockery, actually, of the gospel and the Bible. He was just full of venom, really, when you get right down to it. But when he was yet a young man, in his early 20s, he ran across a young woman, and he didn't actually run across her. He ran across her brother, whose name was Charles Langdon. And Charles had a picture of his sister Olivia and he showed it to Samuel Clemens Mark Twain his pen name of course and when he saw it he was mesmerized this, these were his words he says I've got to meet your sister I must meet her she is the most beautiful woman I've ever seen now when I looked at her picture I thought well she's not what I would call ugly <laughs> but she's not my idea of a beautiful woman, but beauty's in the eye of the beholder, correct? <laughs> Absolutely. So he worked his way into an introduction. She was a devout Christian young lady. She was raised in a Christian home. The family was teetotaler. The families were committed to the abolition of slavery. They were a devout family. And she was that way too. And he began to appeal to her. Would you you consider marrying? He didn't waste any time. Would you marry? She said, no, no. And she knew about his habits of debauchery and drink. And she said, you're not a Christian. I cannot marry a Christian. Long story short, he worked on that goal to have her as his wife for over a year. He wrote 180 love letters to her. I mean, if you got a love letter every day or every other day for a year, I think with the way he had with words, it began to erode your resolve not to marry someone. She married him. She was unequally yoked. As her life unfolded, they had children together, and she helped him a lot in editing his work she was important to him on many levels. She developed what would, it was a physical illness, but she was very depressed, and he saw it, and she was not as lively as she had been when they first met. And he said, "Livy, why don't you just pray to God to help you? And she looked at him through sad eyes, and she said, Samuel, You have robbed me of my devotion and faith in God by living with you all these years. Look, if you're single, don't marry someone who does not love Jesus. And that doesn't mean that everyone who loves Jesus is a candidate to be your spouse. So relax about that too. But don't settle for someone other than a follower of Jesus because what you'll find yourself doing, you'll be living with someone that is opposite of you in the sense of not having Christ and therefore really has no hope of being satisfied in life. Well let's go on. The first thing that we're looking at about the person who is truly blessed is that person is separated from the world. Now, I should say this. I'm glad I had this thought creep into my mind. I know the Lord popped it into my mind more than creeping in. And it's this. In the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 5, there was a situation that the Corinthian church inquired of this apostle, the founder of their church, to get insight into. And the situation was, there was a man in the church who was living with his father's wife, and undoubtedly that was not his mother. It was a stepmother, probably. Scholars are agreed. And he was actively involved in the church, in living out of wedlock. And it's said, and this is hard to imagine, that that arrangement between him as the stepchild of this woman, his stepmother, was something that was not even tolerated in Corinth. And Paul says, don't have anything to do with that man. In fact, disfellowship him from the church because he is a bad influence and this disease will just sort of permeate the church. He said, don't have anything to do with him. Now, I might add, and this is important, lest you mishear me, and I misrepresent Paul and Jesus for that matter. The goal with disfellowshipping him, which they did, it, his name is never mentioned, but it comes up, that man's participation comes up, and it finds it's, it's found in the book of 2 Timothy, and he had grief, grief came over him. Because he couldn't be with the people of God. That shows how little emphasis we put today on the fellowship of Christ in the church, really. But in that 1 Corinthians 5 passage, Paul says, I don't in any way want to suggest that you should have nothing to do with people of this world who may be doing the same thing, people that don't know the Lord. Otherwise, how can they be exposed to a person who is satisfied and content? And more importantly, exposed to the gospel of Jesus Christ. I'm talking, Paul says, about the so-called brother who is acting out that way. Okay, let's go on to the second characteristic. Not only is such a person separated from the world, but saturated with the Word of God. Look at verse 2. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. Let me stop there just a moment. The word law, Torah is the word. And too often we limit the meaning of Torah to what we call the books of Moses. Or even, if you want to be even more narrow, to the Ten Commandments and the explanation and application of the Ten Commandments in the writings of Moses. The word Torah... At its base meaning means teaching, and it would encompass all of what we call the Old Testament. His delight is in the law of the Lord. Let me pause just a moment and consider the word delight. And let me ask you a question. Do you have delight in the law of the Lord, the Word of God? Do you find yourself hungering for the Word of God? Jeremiah didn't have many good days, it seems, when you read his book. He's the weeping prophet. What he saw in Judah broke his heart. But occasionally he would break out of his funk. And in the book of Jeremiah 15, 16, he says, Your words I did find, and I ate them. And listen, they became the delight of my heart. Is it possible that you're not getting into the Word of God, not reading the Word of God? Is it possible that the lack of that is the explanation for your being dissatisfied with life? Well, I'd say I would be willing to bet my bottom dollar it does because delight is found in the law of the Lord. His delight is in the law of the Lord. And in his law, he meditates day and night. Here's the key. So we need to take a moment or two here for sure. Meditate. What does that word mean? In the book of Isaiah, it's used to describe the cooing of a dove. I love this side of town. And I don't have anything against the east side or the northeast or the valley or the upper valley or the lower valley. But I mean, there have been times when I'll come here like about 6 a.m. in the morning and I'll just walk over where the Christian Life Center is and I'll walk behind it and just stand there. There's virtually no traffic at 6 on West Wind, virtually none. But what I will stop in, I'll just listen to the doves cooing. It is unbelievable. It's like a haven for doves. And what does their cooing suggest? To me, at least, it suggests satisfaction, doesn't it? And this word, meditate, is used to describe the cooing of doves by Isaiah. It's also used to describe the growling of a lion. Now, how does that work? The cooing of a dove, gentle as a dove, and the growling of a lion, and a lion is used as a metaphor for the devil, isn't he, in 1 Peter? Isn't it rather? So here we go. What's the difference? In that context, when it talks about the growling of a lion, it's a growling of a lion who has caught his prey. What would be true of that lion? the lion would be satisfied. That lion has been hunting and then has achieved the goal. And there you have it. That would be to what appear on the surface as being contrary things because of the gentleness of the dove and the fierceness of the lion. But in both cases, they're doing what they do to show satisfaction. And when we meditate on Scripture, This word is the word that's used of a cow chewing its cud and swallowing and coming back up and swallowing, swallowing until the food is ready to be fully digested by that cow. The word to meditate means to murmur, it means to talk to yourself. Some of you like to talk to yourself, and I can agree with you on that. I love to talk to myself. I'm just walking around talking to myself all the time. I remember what my father-in-law said one time when we encountered a man. And he said, well, Mike, we finally found someone who can out-talk you, you. know, I mean, what can I say? But nevertheless, this is the idea, meditating, chewing on the Word of God. It's not just reading the Bible. You have to read it to get to the point of meditating on it. And... Remember, these people didn't have a scroll to take along wherever they went. Scrolls were in short supply. But what they did have was a good attention span. And they listened intently when the Word of God was read. And in that day, when most people could not read, it would be important that you have good sense of hearing and you retain what you hear. But what we know is we have the Word of God written form. It can be the best blessing in the world to have a copy of Scripture, but sometimes it keeps us from meditating on Scripture because we read it and we forget about it. But if we memorize some Scripture, and I'm always cautious to bring this up because God has given me better than the ordinary memory. But I happen to believe that part of the reason that my memory has been retained to this point—it may fail me before I finish this message—but and that'll be a sign I'm being rebuked by the Lord. I think if that happens, and if he take when he takes that away, I'm done. You know. But anyhow, what what I'm getting at here is that we know from neuroscience that. The part of your brain, when the synapses, the connections break, that can be renewed, is in the hippocampus, the area of your capacity to memorize, it's the one part of the brain that has renewing possibilities. And so, be a woman of God, a man of God, who says, Lord, please help me to memorize, and if you can't, don't worry about it, read the word and meditate on it, how frequently by the way? Day and night. And when you lie awake at night and you're disturbed, what should you do? Go to the Word of God. Get familiar with so many passages in the Bible that speak about the way of peace being meditating on God's Word. And remember what God says. Such a person is a person who can, can find contentment because that person is saturated with the Word of God. Joshua says in Joshua 1.8, he says, Do not let this book of the law depart from your mouth. Meditate on it day and night so that you may be... Here's the part that where a disconnect occurs for us many times. So that you may be careful to do everything written in it to do what you've heard not just some of it, whatever the Lord's taught you. Be subject to it and let His will apply to the situation in which you find yourself. And the result is that you will be prosperous and successful. I don't know anyone in this room who would not opt for prosperity and success over poverty. And I'm not talking here, and I don't believe God's Word's talking here, about wealth as we know it, but a wealth that cannot be taken away from you. Even if you're stripped of everything you have, you still have the same wealth. Why? You have the Word of God that you can meditate on, and you have the way of God outlined for you. So we want to be People who meditate on God's day and night so that we can prosper, be prosperous and successful. Dallas Willard, one of my mentors, I never met him. I wished I could have met Dallas Willard, but I have met him in his writings. He was a man who, upon graduating from his studies in the Bible and theology at an independent Baptist college and seminary in Chattanooga, Tennessee, Tennessee, Tennessee Temple is the name of it. He knew that he, God, wanted him to pursue further education. And he had a decision to make. He said, on the one hand, I thought, if I go to a seminary and get my THD, then I would be welcome in local churches, but not in the academic world. I would be closing the door of being someone who could be used by God to speak to secular minds His philosophy was his major in his studies to this point, and he wanted to get a Ph.D. in either philosophy of religion or philosophy proper. And so he said, if I go to an academic situation, a secular university, then I will be acceptable in the church because I'm an evangelical Christian. And he held to his evangelical beliefs. He believed the Word of God is the inerrant, inspired Word of God. To the day he died, he did. And he espoused that. But if I am a one who studies philosophy, then I'll have an audience that's a broader audience. I'll be evangelizing the secular world that I would be operating in. He got his Ph.D., in philosophy he found himself eventually on the faculty of the University of Southern California in the philosophy department and he became the chairman of the philosophy department and never at one moment trying to hide his beliefs he was not obnoxious in talking about his devotion to Jesus but he was not afraid to be identified with Christ he made one statement that of all the statements he made, what's to me the most useful, he said, if I had one piece of advice to give to students in university, it would be memorize scripture. This is a brilliant man by anyone's account, an accomplished scholar from the secular view, but he was used by God himself. Undoubtedly because he was a man who meditated on God's Word day and night. That's why Dawson Trodman, the founder of the Navigators, you've heard me say this before, but it's always good for me to remember. After he came to Christ, the Spirit of God just gave him the encouragement to memorize the Bible. That's how he came to know Christ. He was given some verses to memorize on how a person becomes a Christian. And the result was... He got saved because he was meditating on one of those scriptures, John 1:12. But he learned a verse a day, every day, for the first three years of his Christian life, over a thousand verses of scripture. This man was brilliant in his own right. He had a mind that was incredible. He only had one year of formal theological education. It was not because he couldn't cut it in the classroom. It was because he was a man who was being used so mightily that he could not find extra time. And God was bearing fruit through him. Why? He was meditating on God's Word day and night. So you can't hide behind your lack of education. And you can't boast about how much you have, whether it's a Dallas Willard or a Dawson Trotman. These men were men of God in both cases, but those men had ne- learned how important, beyond important, how absolutely necessary it was to be a person who meditates on God's Word day and night. Do You want to be successful? You want to be prosperous? You want to be content, satisfied? What do you need to do? You need to be a man or a woman who makes it your Go. to meditate on God's word day and night look at verse 3 we've looked at how such a person who's blessed is separated from the world it's a choice that person makes is saturated with God's word another choice this person makes and is situated by the water look at verse 3 and he will be a tr- like a tree firmly planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in its season. let's parse that just a moment. Like a tree, the word firmly, which is supplied by the New American Standard, is not in the Hebrew. So you could just blank that out. He will be like a tree planted by streams of water. And the word planted literally in the Hebrew means transplanted by streams of water. The word translated stream actually speaks of a canal, a man-made ditch for the conveyance of water. It was an irrigation ditch, if you will. So, what this says is, he will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water. Now, The terrain, Paul Brooks, one of our dear brothers, and his wife, Kim, just came back from two weeks in Israel. And there are some beautiful areas as far as vegetation goes in Israel. But a lot of it's just kind of deserty, kind of like where we live. And the picture, I think, is being painted here by the Spirit of God is, this person is like a volunteer plant. You know what I mean when I say a volunteer plant? Somehow or another, it finds its way into some soil, that's favorably disposed to its presence, and there's enough moisture in the soil that a plant pops up, and someone comes along, sees this volunteer plant, and has the capacity to dig it up and take it over by a canal. And when it's by a canal, what's going to happen? It's going to flourish, isn't it? And the Lord has saved us out of a place of death. And He has placed us by streams of living water so that we can be filled with liveliness and we can be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water because we meditate on God's Word day and night. And we will yield our fruit just like that tree would in its season. And its leaf does not wither. God's plan for our lives as we've seen many times almost every Sunday I talk about it, is that we glorify Him. And we need to think about what that means. How do I glorify God? Well, I'm not going to say this one verse encompasses all that it means to glorify God, but it goes way over 50%. Jesus says, By this is my Father glorified that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. What are we to do? We're to abide in Christ. That means depend exclusively on Him, and He will produce fruit that remains. That means people who come to know Jesus Christ through us because of our being transplanted by streams of water. Jesus says, if anyone is thirsty, let that person come to me and drink. And out of that person's innermost being shall flow rivers of living water. The word rivers meant more to those who first read it than we do because of the location geographically. We have a sense of that, but we have no lack of water, even though we live in a desert, as it were. But these people really love this. In the book of Psalm, I believe it's 46.4, the Bible says, there is a river that makes glad the city of God. I cannot help but thinking of the last part of the book of Ezekiel, when this stream of water, this vision Ezekiel has, begins to trickle out underneath the doorway to the temple. And as it progresses, it gets deeper and deeper and deeper. And when you begin to analyze that, what you conclude, you must conclude, this is a a representative picture of the work of the Holy Spirit of God. And there are trees that line that body of water that's spoken of by the prophet Ezekiel. And there are all kinds of fish. I think it's a picture of the great ingathering of people of all nations, every tongue, every tribe, and how the gospel transcends all things. And the Spirit of God is indiscriminate in those whom He awakens to the need for salvation in Jesus Christ alone. Also, in the Psalms, I'm having a little difficulty remembering which one. I think it's 36, and this is what the psalmist writes. He says, The children of mankind take refuge under your wings, speaking to God, and they feast on the abundance of your house, and they drink of the water of your river. There is a river that makes the city of God glad we have that available to us in the person of the Holy Spirit of God and he works in our lives and the result is we will bear fruit that remains our leaf does not wither and whatever we do we will prosper I want to finish with another historical illustration the most loved hymn in the English language, maybe of all Christendom, is just, it's amazing grace, right? And we know who the author was, John Newton, which you may not know about John Newton. He was raised in a Christian home, at least his mother was a Christian, his father perhaps wasn't. He was a captain of a sailing merchant vi- vessel. Well, this boy lost his mother just before his seventh birthday, one week before his mother died. And his mother would teach him Scripture. He sat at her knee, and she would teach him Scripture, encouraging him to memorize Scripture, to apply it to his life. This boy lost his mom, and when he lost his mom, he lost any influence at home from the Word of God he was apprenticed to become a captain like his father eventually but you start at the bottom of the food chain if that's going to be the case and he was around all these wicked sailors and it rubbed off on him and one of those ships that he was apprenticed to was a slave ship and he would make with the company of these other sailors the trip from Great Britain, all the way down to what we now know as West Africa, Liberia, and that area, and there would be this wicked trade of human beings that were taken, and he saw that. In fact, he himself became a slave. He was enslaved to the wife of one of the key slavers in that area the man who was the key slaver was a white man. His wife was an African lady and she had him as her slave. He escaped and he went back, but he didn't escape the slave trade. He almost lost his life on the, sh- on the area outside of Ireland when there was this ferocious storm, probably the equivalent of a hurricane. He thought he was dying and as that was happening These verses that had been embedded in his heart when his mother taught him began to flood his mind. Remember what Paul wrote. This just came to mind. Remember what Paul wrote to Timothy in that last letter? He said, from childhood. And the word childhood literally is the word brephos is the word in the original language which means infancy. From infancy you have been exposed to the sacred writings, which are able to lead you to salvation by faith in Christ Jesus. From infancy. Look, it's never too early to read the scripture to your child. I mean, what a gift, mother, you will give to your child. Some of you, most of us, is beyond that time, but you have grandchildren. And take advantage of that time with your grandchild, given the opportunity to have some time with him or her, and share the Word of God. Well, in the case of Newton, he began to think of those verses, and he found himself under conviction, and he was born again. He didn't give up participating in the slave trade instantly. It was a matter of time, not a whole long period of time, but he not only quit the slaving work, he became a priest in the Anglican church, but he began to be an advocate for the abolition of slavery. And the person that we most associate when we think of the abolition of slavery in the British Empire, which was critically important, was a man named William Wilberforce. Come to find out, Wilberforce's greatest influence outside of Jesus himself was, you guessed it, John Newton. And where did his trek toward Jesus begin? His mother. Mothers, thank you. Thank you, mothers, for the influence you've had on your children. And the best thing you can do as a mother, or we can do as fathers, is to be men and women of the Word of God. Not cramming it down our kids' throats, but practicing it. Doing it. And there'll be a quality in our lives that your grandchild or your child will not find in other mothers or grandmothers that they're affiliated with. And the Lord will use you, just like He used a deceased mother to bring to mind this Gospel that saved John Newton, who was used in many ways, still continues to be used when we sing Amazing Grace. And praise the Lord that it's within your reach, if you're a man or a woman, and you know Jesus Christ, and you're always looking for that thing that finally satisfies, it will finally get you to the point, not of complacency, please, It's not a position of complacency. In fact, Paul says, and if anyone was fired up about meditating on God's Word, it was the Apostle Paul. He says, I am constrained. I I mean, I can't help myself to follow Christ and preach the gospel. So here was a real man of God. And if you want to be a person who makes an imprint on not just a little while, but all eternity it starts with you and me when we meditate on that word and we separate ourselves from the world we're people who saturate ourselves with the Word of God and we situate ourselves by rivers of living water coming continually coming and drinking of what Jesus has for us in his word Lord thank you again for the privilege of being here today with our brothers and sisters in Christ Oh Lord, make us a church. It's a church that's founded on Your Word. Not to beat people up with, but just to do what You say we're to do and to be who You say we are, more importantly. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.